Amen. Thank you, Grant. Good morning, all. Well, grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Romans chapter 16. This morning, we're studying the very last section of the book. So if you're, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're new, you've, you've stepped into the very, 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 very end of a long expository series. Listen to this. 16 chapters, 433 verses. And as best I can tell, this is sermon number 84 in the series. And as I mentioned last Sunday, God has seen fit to strengthen us and to carry us through this study over a period of about two years and ten months. So we praise him this morning for his faithfulness and carrying us through it together. I can tell you this, that, that, that preaching through Romans has been one of the highlights of my, my life in ministry. I, I've learned so much and God has been so gracious, so I, I hope that you have as well. So as we come to this last section, let's ask the question, how is Paul going to wrap it up? This glorious letter, well, how, do you, how do you put a cap on it? Right? What's, what's going to be his final thing that's on his mind? Because final words can be weighty, can't they? We know that's true. Now, you probably thought, well, the letter should be finished by now. After all, last Sunday, we, we read how Paul sent greetings to 26 different people in the church at Rome. Do you remember? Who are they? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slaves, noblemen. This vast array of people from every social category that you can think of. That church in Rome was truly a diverse body. So shouldn't that be the end? I mean, you've said your, your greetings, right? Maybe, maybe a quick benediction and, and, and wrap it up. But then before he signs off, Paul remembers one last really important thing. And he gives the church one last very solemn word of warning. A warning about men who will eventually come to Rome and seek to undermine the very truths and practices that Paul has just gone to great lengths to explain and teach in this letter. They're coming. It reminds me, and anybody here this morning who's a parent knows this, you know how when you decide to, to get a date night and you, you get a babysitter for your, for your child, and there's that moment when you're leaving for the night and you turn around, you're at the door, and you're like, okay, I'm entrusting my children to this person, and you have that semi-moment of panic about that, and you say, well, there's a couple last really important things I want to tell you. So you run down the list. So here's how you can reach me. Here's where I'm going to be, and here's about the time I'm going to come home. Final instructions. Well, I think this last section that Paul's giving us is something like that. He's, he's a spiritual father. Remember that. A spiritual father. He loves these saints in Rome so dearly, and it's like he gets to the, gets to the door, and he turns around, and he says, one more thing. One more thing I want to leave with you, and this is really, really important. So let's look at it. For now, we're, let's just concentrate on verse 17 in our text, because this really is his final focus and concern. So Romans 16, verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, or brothers and sisters. Now, by the way, that's the third time we've seen that word urge in recent chapters. Remember, we talked about how important this verb is, parakaleo. And it's a word, it's a verb that speaks with urgency and importance. This is urgent and this is important. Remember, he said, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice unto God. I urge you to strive in your prayers for me as I go on this journey. And now, here in verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I beg you to do what? 
to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And do what? Turn away from them. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, that's, a, that's an odd way to wrap up a letter. That, that doesn't seem really practical, but we think that at our own peril. See, here's the thing. It's easy for us today in the American church to underestimate just how much damage has been done to the cause of Christ over 2,000 years by people who do this very thing, who cause dissensions and lay hindrances in the path of others. Damage done to individual believers, damage to their souls, damage to local churches, and sadly, damage done to the witness and influence of the church throughout the world. And so Paul's rightly concerned for this church in Rome. At that moment, they were known for having a solid reputation as a body. In fact, he says that, look at verse 19, he says, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Everybody's heard about how well you're doing, your obedience as a church. He says, therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But we also know from the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus that false teachers had crept into churches in places like Crete and Ephesus and Corinth. At this point, it doesn't look like they've gotten to Rome yet, but Paul wants to make sure that the people in Rome have their eyes open. So the warning is serious. Watch out. Keep your eyes open for this thing. Have you ever been walking, you've been hiking, and you hear a sound in the bush and you see a snake? Do you take your eyes off that snake as you walk by? You better not, right? So you, so you like walk by and you, you're, you're just the whole way, you're looking at that snake. That's what Paul's talking about. Keep your eyes on these snakes. Be on alert. Because it's just a matter of time before contentious and divisive men walk into your worship service. Now, before we go any further on that subject, let's nail down some of the details that encircle this teaching. Go back to verse 16. We Actually, we skipped over it last Sunday. I know somebody brought it to my attention. I always appreciate that. But what does it say in verse 16? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Anybody uncomfortable with that? Okay. Uh, don't be. That's just, that's just a cultural thing, a norm for that, that day and time and in that region. For us today, it would be like, greet one another with a righteous hug. Does that sound better? Okay, because that's just culturally normal for us. Same idea. This, your brothers and sisters, impurity, greet one another in an intimate way. Beautiful, actually. Now, we're going to bypass verses 17 to 20. We'll come back to them in a second. Drop down to verse 21. In verses 21 to 23, we see a list of the guys who were with Paul in Corinth when he was writing this letter to the Romans. This is his missionary team from Corinth. So let's walk through them. First, in verse 21, we have our man Timothy, right? Timotheos is how you pronounce his name in the Greek. And we know who Timothy was. We know him well. It's safe to say that Timothy was Paul's closest ministry partner. He was a spiritual son to Paul. We see his name all over the New Testament. He gets 26 mentions in the New Testament. Not bad, right, for a young guy? We read about him traveling with Paul. We read about him helping Paul to, to establish churches in all these different places. We see him being left behind in certain locations by Paul so that he can organize the church and pastor the church and teach. We see him ministering to Paul when Paul was in prison. And of course, Paul wrote two letters to him personally instructing him how to shepherd the local church. So Timothy's important. Who else sends his greetings to Rome? Verse 21, Lucios. We don't have any information on this guy. Nothing. 
but he was important to Paul. And we, we say Jason, Yasson. Okay, Jason. This man we know from Acts 17. He's prominent in Acts 17. He's the guy who, who, uh, who extended hospitality to Paul when he was in Thessalonica. He said, come and minister out of my house. And then the, the Jewish mob came looking for Paul, and they broke into his house and dragged him away. Thankfully, he survived that. But he's a man of hospitality. So Sipatros, who's also mentioned in Acts 20. And then notice how Paul calls these three gentlemen my kinsmen. What does that mean? These three were Jewish. These were Jewish brothers of his. But then we come to some Greeks. Verse 22, I, Tertios, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So here's our only knowledge of this man, and yet look at his job. This was Paul's scribe who wrote down with his hand, does this give you shivers? The original book of Romans. The only mention we have of him, but what an important job. I know, my wife's laughing at me. I'm a nerd. But I, when I think about the original book of Romans, with his hand, he wrote it down. What a pro- he goes down in history as the guy who wrote this down and then handed it to who? Probably to Phoebe. We looked at that last week, and she carried it to the church in Rome. Amazing. That'd be a good guy to meet in heaven, right? Gaius. Now, that's a very common Greek name. There's a number of Gaiuses in Scripture. This one is probably the man who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the guys that Paul personally baptized. Hey, that's a pretty cool thing, too. Paul baptized me. That ain't bad. Okay, so Gaius. He says, Gaius, host of the whole church, greets you. Host to me, he says. So it's likely that when Paul's writing the letter of Romans, he's staying at Gaius's house, and that his house is big enough to host a, 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 a church, a house church there in Corinth. Then we come to Erastus, who's also mentioned in Acts 19. He's a city treasurer. So yeah, Christians in local government. Interesting. And Coartus, the brother. That's all it says. Another guy we have no historical data on. So the point of all this is simple. All of these men were intimately important to Paul. Incredibly important. Significant role in his ministry. And I know I've said it before many times, but I'll say it again. Paul didn't do missions in isolation. He was not a Lone Ranger Christian. He worked in teams. Even a guy as, as incredible and strong as Paul, a guy with a, with a drive like no other, needed a team around him. And we do too. Also notice again that he used both Jews and Gentiles in his ministry. And as he's preaching to so many others about breaking down that wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, he practiced it himself in order to not be hypocritical and to be an example to others. So really important list here. So now we've seen the, 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 the ministry team in Corinth sending greetings. We've looked at the 26 people in Rome. We've seen Phoebe who carried the letter. We got the full picture of all the people that are involved in this. Again, like we said last week, real people, just like us, involved in ministry. All right, so let's come back to this big idea, this warning, because I want to spend the rest of our time on this particular subject because it's so important. My goal today is to try to take this teaching and lift it out of the context of first century Rome and make it really practical for the church today because this warning that was given in the first century is just as applicable today in the 21st century. And in fact, I want to even narrow it down even more so that we can make this really applicable to this church, to Oak Hill. And to do that, we're going to walk down a path of logic using Scripture as our guide, a line of reasoning that helps us understand, listen to this now, what we're supposed to do when theological differences and practical disagreements arise in the church, because they happen. Can I get an amen? They happen. 
theological differences and practical disagreements. And this is something, by the way, that the Protestant church is notorious for not handling well. It's why we have so many hundreds of denominations today. We have not handled our disagreements well. In fact, it's a rare thing. When I talk to a Christian and they say, you know what, I've never, been, I've never seen a church split. Or I've never been a part of a church. That is a very rare thing today when somebody goes, yeah, I haven't seen that happen. Because we are so bad at handling our differences and disagreements. So the first step in the process this morning is to acknowledge one overarching principle, and that's this, that unity is at the very core of what Christ desires for his church. Unity is at the core of what Christ desires for his church. Now, not unity at any cost whatsoever, but in every way possible, he desires that we strive for peace and unity. Why? Because unity builds up individual believers like us. Unity strengthens the church as a whole. Unity makes us a powerful force against the enemy. It empowers our witness in the world. And most importantly, our unity, our oneness, gives glory to God. It shows the world who he is as we come together as one. If we're truly a body, as we often talk about, then we're going to function best when we're functioning as one. All moving together. I like to say all rowing in the same direction. Every part of our body working in harmony, each member doing its part. And when we are in disunity, when the church universal or the church local is in disunity, it limps along in a weakened state, and it doesn't advance the gospel as it could. Now, the secret to achieving this unity begins with how we view ourselves and how we view the people around us. Very important. How we view ourselves and how we view our brothers and sisters in the local church. That's why we read from Philippians 2 in our call to worship this morning. Let me say it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, every other person here, as more significant than yourself. That's big. Almost all disunity in the church can be traced back to the simple truth that too often we act selfishly. Selfishly. We consider ourselves, and more importantly, we consider our opinions as better than everyone else, as more important and more worthy of a hearing than those around us. Then Paul continues, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when churches fall into conflict and turmoil, it's usually because there's somebody in the body or some group of people in the body who are absolutely bent on satisfying their own needs gratifying their own desires, feeding their own egos, and their own ambitions. That's what the world does, right? That's what we learn in the world. It's a, everything's a power struggle in the world. And it's true, Christians often, we end up mimicking the world in the way we operate in the church. It's hard to believe that, but we do. We see it in the Corinthians. Paul talked about it in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this. He says, hey, Corinthians, you're acting fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Guys, are you not walking like the world? When you don't consider others more significant, when you seek to meet your needs and to get your voice heard and to satisfy your ego and your ambition, you're acting fleshly. The opposite of a fleshly church is one that takes Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 to heart. A group of people who walk like this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, listen to this, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A church like that, where everybody's considering everyone else more significant and seeking those things, that's a church that can't help but function in unity. Now, I mentioned this just a moment ago, that unity is important, but not at any cost whatsoever. What do I mean by that? There are times when Christians must divide, when we must break fellowship, when we have to stand up and say, no, we will not teach that, we will not believe it in Christ's church. And we have examples of this in Scripture, right? Times when, for example, Paul told the Corinthian church, hey, you got to expel that man because of his unrepentant sexual sin in the body. You need to expel him. You need to divide until he repents. When Paul reminded Timothy of two men named Hymenaeus and Philetas, who he says had abandoned the truth, listen to this, and by their worldly chatter, he says, they had upset the faith of some in the church. So they began to gossip. They began to teach their own ideas. They began to undermine authority and begin to teach things that were strange, and they led people astray. They abandoned the truth. So there are legitimate times to break fellowship with people, and there are legitimate times to break unity with a local church. But here's my strong exhortation as I say that. Very strong. If you do choose to break fellowship, be more than certain that the issue in question is essential to the Christian faith and not just your opinion. Not just your opinion, not just a strong stance that you've decided to take on a secondary issue. Don't break fellowship on that. Do not divide the body of Christ. And friends, knowing the difference between those things, what are essential and what are secondary matters, that's a part of growing in grace, part of growing in discernment and in wisdom. And as you're growing in that, be very, very cautious before you divide. Make sense? Now, here's one of those strange things that makes this passage really, really interesting in Romans 16. When you look at a spectrum, and I I get to show you a chart in a second. I'm very excited. When you look at a spectrum of potentially divisive people and ideas, you see two basic extremes. On one side, you see what we call disputable matters, right? We talked about this in Romans 14. These are issues, Paul says, of of eating and and drinking and of celebrating certain holidays. Today, we'd say, well, these are issues of what do you wear to church and and can you get a tattoo and can you have a drink? Uh, What else? What else we talk about? Um... What else? Uh, Celebrating something like Halloween. All these disputable matters. And and Paul's very clear. We're never to break fellowship over these things. They're not essential. They're gray areas. They're disputable matters. You might feel strongly about it. You may not. And so the weaker brother and the stronger brother, they're to bear with one one another in love. And they're not to judge each other and accept one another. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the other are what we call doctrinal heresy. Believing and teaching things that undermine the essential truths of the historic faith. That things that you believe or teach that actually just, they take you out of what is historically called orthodox Christianity. You cannot be a believer and believe and teach those things. Doctrinal heresy. We're talking about things like inerrancy of scripture, the Trinitarian nature of God, the depravity of man, right? The full deity and humanity of Christ, salvation by faith alone. And we're always to break fellowship over those issues, always, because those are the historic doctrines of the church that we will stand on and refuse to compromise. This is why we can't have fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church, why we can't have fellowship with the Mormon Church, because they break break away from true Orthodox doctrine. 
So look at the two extremes on the screen. Never divide, always divide. Question now, is there something in the middle? I think there is. In fact, I think Paul is describing a third category of person in this passage in Romans 16. I think it's right here. And by the way, this third category is most likely to be the type of person that comes to Oak Hill and presents a threat. Make sense? So let's look again at how Paul describes these people. Look at verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, there's that urge. This is important. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So, obviously Paul's not talking about disputable matters here. He's not saying, hey, patiently bear with people who cause dissensions in the church. That can't be true. And it doesn't look to me like he's describing heresy here either. The reason I say that is because the typical language in Scripture when describing heretical teachers are things like savage wolves, false prophets, ungodly persons marked out for destruction. You don't see that here. The typical language of what they teach is called a false gospel or a destructive heresy. You don't see that either. And the normal remedy for dealing with such men is, Paul says, turn them over to Satan or expel them from the church, or they're to be accursed. But you don't see that language here either. It's interesting. Paul doesn't say, reject these men and expel them from the church, curse them on the way out. What does he say? Keep an eye on them. Like that snake in the grass. Keep an eye on them and avoid them. Deplatform them. Take away the oxygen that they're looking for. Avoid them. So I think this is a description of this third category of people in the church. Not a weaker brother or sister, not an outright heretic, but listen, simply this. People who are Christians, people who are Christians saved by God's grace alone, but for one reason or another, they are prone to being contentious and divisive. And you've met some of these folks. If you've been in the church for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about. They're believers. In fact, they often know the Bible really well, but they're prone to be contentious and prone to be divisive. So this word dissensions, Paul says. Some, some translations say divisions. In classical Greek literature, this word is applied, listen to this, to cases of sedition. These are people who incite rebellion to authority. Then he says hindrances. This is the same Greek word that we saw in chapter 14 that talk about a stumbling block. So by contradicting what's being taught week in and week out, by those who have been charged to lead and to feed the flock, by contradicting that teaching, what they're doing is laying all kinds of confusing stumbling blocks in the path of those in the church. They're hearing one thing, but then they're getting something else. And it's a stumbling block to them. And then at the end of verse 18, we hear what the effect is. It says, by their smooth and flattering speech, they do what? They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, the vulnerable, the people in the church who are naive to and unaware of the dangers that they're facing. So what these deceivers do, these dividers, what they do is they seek out easy prey, people that they can manipulate. And oftentimes we, we're unsuspecting. We don't see it coming. If these folks are given a platform, there's any number of harmful things they can do to the body. They can create doubt and confusion. 
in the minds of those who are less mature in the faith. They can drive truth seekers completely away from the gospel. They can undermine the teaching and authority of church leadership. They can fan the flames of grumbling and gossip. And overall, they create an atmosphere of conflict and instability, and they weaken the church. In terms of personality, and I share this to you with you from personal experience, they are wired for controversy. There's just some people that are wired to be controversial. They feed off of it. They love to be contrarian. They love a new take on this or a new opinion on that. I can tell you from personal experience, after many years in the ministry and after being burned a bunch of times, I've learned to spot them pretty quickly. Now, I always try to think the best of everybody I meet, but you know how your spidey sense begins to get trained? It happens over time. In fact, pastors and elders can get really cynical because over and over again, we can get burned by putting our heart out there and then being betrayed. So we get a little bit cynical. Our eyes, we're looking for those snakes in the grass all the time. The spidey sense sometimes goes off. These dividers come into the church and they're very, very confident in themselves. They have strong opinions on everything. Nothing is disputable. Everything, they have a strong, strong opinion and they're not shy in sharing those opinions. They're almost always well-read, puffed up in their knowledge, but always lacking love. They're usually convinced that they have a new take or new insights, that they've found something, the mysteries of the scriptures that nobody else knows about. Their goal is often to get a foothold in the teaching ministry of the church, and if they can't do that, they'll look for every opportunity in public to show how smart they are, to wax eloquently about what they think and what they believe. And in that process, what they want to do is to build their own set of disciples. They want to build their own set of followers who will hang on their every word. It's all about them and their ego. You see Paul references, look at verse 18. He says, such men are slaves. They're not serving our Lord Christ. They're serving their own appetites. Literally, the wording here is they're filling their bellies in the way they operate in the church. Deep down below the false humility that they often have on the outside, their wish is really to gratify themselves. It's not about building up others. It's about gratifying themselves. And if they're not checked, what's eventually, where's it going to lead? Predictably, this leads to quarrels and factions and rebellion against authority. And then sadly, and some of you know this, it leads to you know, a group of people having a hushed conversation in the corner after church or to secret meetings in somebody's house to gathering people on your side and then pointing to everybody who disagrees and say, there's the enemy. And ultimately, that leads to either a church split or the imploding of a church altogether. And then it's amazing how at the end of that, we all walk away shaking our heads going, I don't know how this happened. This came upon us so suddenly. No, it didn't. It had been building for a time as these dividers crept into the church and began to do these things. Seen it. Lived it. Don't want to see it again. And Jesus weeps over all of it. Now we know about this third type of person, this divider, not just from Romans 16, but from many other places in the New Testament. Some of you guys know the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written by Paul to Titus and to Timothy, instructing them how to pastor a church. Young guys in the ministry, tough crowds that they're working with, 
here's the way, here's what you need to do to go out and to pastor and shepherd a local church. And in these two letters, Paul makes multiple mentions of men like this. Again, he, he stops short of calling them outright heretics, but he says they're a serious problem in the church. I'm going to give you really quick five, five examples of it from 1 Timothy 1. He says to Timothy, hey, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which gave rise to mere speculation, to fruitless discussion. In chapter 6, he talks about a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind. In 2 Timothy, he says, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Now, he's not saying that words don't matter in Scripture. We shouldn't be precise. He's talking about non-essential words, fighting over, over fruitless things. It's useless, he says. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it leads to further ungodliness. And their talk, the, the gossip, the talk, the teaching of these men spreads like gangrene which, by the way, smells and is harmful. Later, in 2 Timothy 2, real quick, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they always do this. They produce quarrels. And then lastly, to Titus, he says in Titus 3, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. And then here's a remedy, interestingly, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-judged or self-condemned. So you get the idea, right? We talk in the modern church about how these church splits are so common, but notice this. This stuff's been around since the very beginning because human beings don't... The heart of man continues to be wicked, continues to be self-centered and self-focused. All this clatter and debate, all this speculation and stirring up a controversy, it's going to produce quarrels. It's going to produce factions and all over non-essential things. This is the proverbial missing the forest for the trees. When we begin to major on the minors and turn molehills into mountains, rather than drawing together as one in Christ for the purpose of advancing the kingdom, rooted in the essentials of what makes us one, we miss the big point. We miss the big idea. We miss the forest for the trees because we're word wrangling. A story is told of an elderly man who, who ran a convenience store. When he was young, this had been a prosperous business, but as he got older, he, he sort of caught OCD. And he got absolutely obsessed with the idea of keeping the store as, as pristine as possible. So he would spend hours and hours arranging and then rearranging the merchandise on the shelves over and over and over again. So much so that he refused to open the front doors to the store because he was afraid the customers would come in and mess it up. Well, obviously his business failed because the appearance of the store became the number one priority and selling the merchandise became a secondary matter. Now that sounds crazy to us, right? But don't we do the same thing in the church, when we forget what the main thing is, what unites us, how important harmony and, uni and unity and peace is in the body, and instead we mire ourselves in distractions that divide us. And then we fail. Like that business, we fail as a church. We limp along. 
We strain out a gnat while swallowing a camel. That's what we do. We sacrifice kingdom relationships over fruitless debates. We study our Bibles forgetting that the whole purpose of Bible study is life transformation and the growing in maturity and wisdom, not acquiring facts so that you can wax eloquently to your audience and then say, look, I'm right. This is the danger of divisive people in the church. Let me share a few real-life examples. So if you want to see what this actually looks like in life, I want to share three examples with you in the life of Oak Hill Bible. You think, oh, come on, this, this stuff doesn't happen in a church of our size. I'll give you just three. I could give you more than that. Years ago, there was a guy who came to the church on a Sunday, and he, I remember seeing him, and he asked to talk to me after the service. He had some really great questions about the church and about what we taught. I was impressed. He said he was excited to come back next Sunday, I went home that day, I said to Tanya, I said, I'm encouraged by this guy. New guy. I mean, we're a small church, new guy, excited about the word. And my first inclination is always, well, great, this, this could be a, a turning point in the life of our church. A guy who could come in and maybe be a teacher someday. This is really exciting. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and he asks, time, he asks if I have time to get together with him. And he says, can you come over to my place and have coffee? I never turn down coffee. You know that. But when I get there... He proceeds to show me with great pride his vast theological library. Huge library. I mean, more, twice the number of books that I have as a pastor. And, and by the way, I love books. It's, it, was a, it was a fantastic collection. But again, my, my spidey sense was going off a little bit. I'm like, is there something behind the bluster that I'm seeing here? And we sit down for coffee. And then he tells me, he goes, by the way, I run a discernment website. Jesse knows what I'm talking about. Anybody know what a discernment website is? This is somebody who is a self-appointed watchdog of the church. This is a professional critic of churches and pastors, at least someone who's trying to be if he can get enough sponsors and ads for his website. And he's showing me his website, and he's talking about all the nuances of theology that he's been studying and all the interesting conclusions that he's come to. And then he starts to describe all the prominent pastors and churches and ministries that he has judged incorrect. And then he shows me these scathing reviews that he's written about them online. (laughs) Pages and pages of critical material detailed with citations and footnotes. And I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I'm looking at this going, holy cow. Alarm bells and red flags are going off in my head. I'm like, who is this guy, right? Well, it was just a matter of months before. By the way, I couldn't just say, don't come to my church. It's a free country. I couldn't just say, look, you're scaring the heck out of me, and I prefer you didn't come to church. It's a free country. Well, it was only a matter of months before I said something really minor in a sermon that ended our relationship fast. And I remember him saying, we need to talk about this. And I was like, hmm, not interested. No, no, no. He demanded that we sit down and talk about this this minor non-essential. And I was like, mm. he threatened to leave the church. I'm, mm. <laughs> and he did. He left the church. And guess what? Within a week, I was on his website. Sad. Now, the good news in that story, he wasn't around long enough to entangle himself in the teaching of the church and to, to, to lead anybody astray or to undermine our authority or anything like that, but that has happened as well. I know I've shared this story uh, before, but it's worth using as an example again. 
Uh, years ago, we had a really nice middle-aged guy come into our church. Seemed like a good guy, needed to grow in the Lord, as we all do. His life was a little bit messy. But I was really excited uh, to, to have him join the church and begin to live life with him. Um, he'd been with us, I don't know, I'm terrible at, at time frames, a year, maybe, maybe two. And, and he started to go off the grid. You know, he's just sort of, where, where is that guy? Haven't seen him in a while. And, and when he would show up, he wouldn't return texts or phone calls. When he did show up, his countenance wasn't the same. There was something clearly going on in his life. Well, come to find out, as I pressed him on what was going on, he told me that he'd been done doing nothing but reading books about eschatology. I mean, lots of them, and nothing else. And he was just consumed with the second coming. And he'd read all these sort of fringe authors, and he'd come to all these sort of crazy speculations about about the second coming, and it was all that he could talk about. In fact, I remember sitting down and going, I, remember, I won't say his name, but I said, let's, let's get co- back to coffee. Let's get coffee, uh, because I want to hear more about, about these theories. And he came this day with a four-foot chart. He made a giant four-foot chart of, of, of the end times. And I was like, what is happening right now? Uh, and so I tried to talk him you know, off the ledge, just, hey, Brother, you need to sort of expand your, your, your reading right now. You need to get away from this for a while because it's obviously having an effect on you. Well, that didn't make him happy. Um, and in fact, he said some very unkind things to me and stormed out. And uh, then I found out later on that he'd been meeting with all kinds of people in the church. I didn't even know this was happening, but he'd been meeting with people after people trying to explain his, his, his particular uh, view of eschatology, and he confused a ton of people. We had to do a whole bunch of work at sort of correcting a, a lot of what he was teaching other people, so it became a problem. And eventually we had to ask him to leave the church. And so all we said to the folks was, just what Paul says here in Romans 16, this is a guy you should avoid. I'm not saying he's a heretic, I'm not saying he's not a believer, but he's a contentious man. And, and he's, he's OCDing on this thing, and we simply need to keep our eyes on him and avoid him. It was hard. Last story, there was a time when a man who I would describe as a really good friend and a leader in the church decided to sabotage Oak Hill from within. And this is an example of how a good thing can become evil. This guy was consistent. Some of you guys are going to know this story. Again, we're not gonna, let's not gossip. Let's not use names. But it's, it's instructive for us. Consistently upset over one thing. In his opinion, Oak Hill was not doing enough family ministry. And it was just a burr under his saddle. He was convinced that the men of the church weren't leading well enough in the home. And as a result, he kept saying, and these are his words, the women of Oak Hill, they're running amok. Uh, And he seemed perpetually angry about this in spite of the fact we sat down, again over coffee, and had multiple conversations about, you know what, I really value family ministry, but the the priorities of the church are, are simply different right now. And that just fueled his frustration and he watched and he waited for an opportunity to vent his anger. Well, our leadership one, one month, we prayed and we decided we were going to explore the idea of moving the location of our worship service to a different place. And he began grumbling about this and began grumbling to other people in the church about particularly me, but also about the qualifications of those who were leading our church at the time. Turns out he was slowly feeding a group of disgruntled people. And rather than trying to repair that, and seek unity in a healthy dialogue, he was poisoning people against the leaders of the church. That eventually caused a number of families to leave. 
And they left in a very angry, unbiblical way, leaving a trail of really, a trail of bodies in their way. That's all I can describe, just a trail of bodies. A number of people that got caught up in that chaos walked away from the church completely. I don't think they've still returned to this day. Great damage was done to the church. Contentious people, divisive people. What have I learned? Exactly what Paul says here in Romans 16. Keep your eyes out. Check the grass. See the snake. And then turn away from them. These are lessons, and I know I'm not alone in this, lessons forged in the heat of spiritual battle. And speaking of that, there is a verse here we haven't looked at yet, verse 20. And it's something we should look at. Actually, back up to verse 19, because this is really an important sort of backdrop to this discussion. Look at verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. I noted that statement earlier, but look at the next phrase. But I want you Romans to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In other words, Paul wants the believers in the Rome to start practicing good discernment. Be wise enough to identify what is good and when it comes to what is evil, be willing to quickly recognize it and turn away. Avoid it. Remember how Jesus said, be shrewd as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. Same concept. Good and evil. Discern the difference. Turn away from evil. Now, here's what I really want you to see. Verse 20 is amazing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What? Does that, does that, statement, does that statement look like out of place? Like, where did that come from, Paul? 16 chapters. This is so funny. 16 chapters, 433 verses, no mention of Satan until eight verses to go. And suddenly here we have Satan. What's the connection here? Well, you know the answer. What power lies behind disunity and confusion in the church? Satan. Whether they realize it or not, these dividers who, again, I... I'm not saying they're not Christians. Whether they realize it or not, they end up serving the purposes of our spiritual enemy when they create dissensions and hindrances. They work for Satan, unbeknownst to them. He is the master of exploiting our weaknesses. He will use the ego of really knowledgeable men, and he will manipulate the naivete of those who are less mature. And combine those two things, and you have a recipe for chaos and confusion. Anything that he can do to sow division in the body and then weaken the power of the church and the gospel. That's what he's about. Now, the good news is the promise that we see in verse 20 is that we know the ultimate end of this, right? So here's the thing. Paul, Peter, all the, they all warn false teachers are going to come into the church. Dividers and contentious men are going to come and they're going to do their damage, but God remains sovereign. And there is coming a day where Satan will be crushed under our feet. Why? Because we're in Christ. Satan will be crushed under Christ's foot. We're in Christ. He'll be crushed by us, ultimately. That's good news, isn't it? Of this we can be certain. There's coming a day, then there will be no more disputable matters. There will be no more theological debates or arguments to be had because we'll all see Jesus face to face and we will know all things. That's the hope and the promise. Isn't that great? I mean, all this mess that, that we've seen in the church, church splits, all that stuff, someday they'll come to an end. We'll know all things. We'll be with Jesus forever. I can't wait. In the meantime, as we wait here on the earth, there is one last question. I'm going to wrap up with this. 
So what do we do when there's disagreement? What do we do? Is there such a thing as a healthy dialogue and a healthy debate, even a healthy disagreement on non-essential points of theology? And the answer is absolutely. Of course there is. Folks, we're not the Roman Catholic Church. We don't have a magisterium sitting in a big building in Rome that issues edicts from on high and says, you will believe this, you will comply with this, or we'll excommunicate you. In the Protestant church, we don't lord our power like that. Instead, we leave room for every believer, the priesthood of all believers. All of you have a chance for personal study, personal reflection, personal conviction. You have the freedom of conscience. That's what the reformers battled for. But the downside of that is obvious, isn't it? Because it opens the door for everybody to have an opinion, and oftentimes not a well-informed opinion. Add to that the chaos that we now have on the, on the interwebs, right? The ridiculous amount of information that's now available, and by the click of a mouse, we can get all kinds of bad theology and false teaching. And then we can absorb that and pass it on to other people. It's really quite scary. The internet is both a, a blessing and a curse, isn't it? So I've been asked this question just recently at our Tuesday Night C group. If I disagree about some teaching here at Oak Hill, what am I supposed to do with that? If you're saying to yourself, well, look, I don't want to be one of these people that Paul's describing here. I don't want to, I don't want to cause dissension. I don't want to lay hindrances in front of people, but I do want to strive for sound theology, even in secondary matters. So what's the process for starting these healthy conversations? Well, first of all, there's a few critical things to understand about how we do that in a healthy way. Our elder team wants to so badly stimulate that type of discourse. It's a good thing amongst people that love each other to have these discussions. But I want you to know something. The elders of this church are always on high alert for snakes. You have to know that. Our radar is up. Our spidey sense is working. Why? Because we've been tasked with a responsibility. It's an important one. It's to both feed and to protect the flock. And so we will address threats that come from us. They might come from outside, but they also might come from inside. And we'll be quick to address them. And we have to give an account to Jesus someday on how well we did this or not. And so we take our role very, very seriously. Secondly, know that each of the elders has witnessed with our own eyes all kinds of these stories. Every one of us on the elder team has stories to tell about men that Paul describes here in Romans 16. And what we have right now at Oak Hill, the unity that we have here is too precious to let it slip away, too precious to allow disunity to grow in the body. So we're going to be quick to address it. Friends, hear me on this. The key to healthy disagreement and debate in the church is developing trust in one another. And the only way to develop that trust is by building relationships, by truly living life together and knowing each other well, that our hearts are in line with each other. There's no substitution for that. Guys, I love, one of my favorite things is I wake up on Monday and I check my email and sometimes I have questions from you guys. Hard questions. Some of them are really hard too. Questions that you sent me an email, I absolutely love that. But you know why I love it? Because I know those questions are asked in good faith. I know they're asked because you, you love me, because you care about our church, and because you're really searching for biblical truth. I love those questions. I well, even if we end up disagreeing, I love that process. It's really, really healthy. 
I also love to hear stories about Oak Hill members who are out there amongst, outside of the elder team. You guys are just out there talking about theology. That's a, that's a really great thing. You're having discussions about disputable matters, discussions about interpretive theory, about difficult passages of Scripture. Those are all good and healthy as long as, here's the disclaimer, the purpose and goal is mutual edification, not to win an argument. Mutual building up of one another, that we're stirring up one another towards love and good deeds. Again, even if at the end of the day we say, we're not going to agree on this. That's healthy because it's built in the context of trust and relationship. That requires humility on both parts, not ego. Ego can't be a part of it. It requires submission to one another, not stubbornness. Again, come back full circle to Philippians 2. Unity requires that in every way we consider the other person more significant than ourselves. Their opinions more significant than mine. The health of the church more important than this debate that we're having right now. Make sense? I'm convinced that, and you've heard me say this before, self-awareness is one of the most important things we can develop as Christians walking in the Spirit. To know ourselves well, to know God first, but then to know ourselves. If you know, this is just a warning now for all of us, if you know that you have a tendency, for whatever reason, to be critical, if you have a tendency to be contentious, if you know that you sometimes lean towards being a grumbler, or to seek attention, or to spread gossip, if you have a a bent towards maybe growing a little bit arrogant as you study, to maybe rebel against authority. Let this passage be a great warning. Be aware of how you think about the church. Be self-aware. How do I think about the church? How do I speak about the church? And to whom am I speaking about the church? And what are those opinions? What am I sharing with others that might poison them? Be aware of it. Don't be, as Paul says, unsuspecting. Because part of his point here is, is that sometimes dividers, they don't even realize they're dividers. But they're unsuspecting. And they're vulnerable. Don't become easy prey. Satan may have marked you out. They're like, that person right there. I can use something in them. I can use their ego. I can use their knowledge to create division in the church. Be self-aware. What are your tendencies? Don't let him exploit you. Listen, may we... All of us never, ever, intentionally or otherwise, harm the bride of Christ. Uh, that, that is the last thing any of us at the end of our life want on our resume is that I brought harm to the bride of Christ or to brothers and sisters in Christ. Never. For all of us at Oak Hill, let's remember these weighty final words that Paul leaves us in the book of Romans. Stay alert. Keep your eyes peeled. See the snake in the grass. Be ready to identify it. Say that's wrong and turn away. Turn away. In every way possible, may we strive for the type of peace and unity that brings God the glory he deserves in this church. Amen? Let's pray.